0: All right. Um, we are in Colossians 1. I wasn't here last week. As, as uh, many of you know, we were back with Benjamin. Great visit with him. We'd love to tell you about it if you're uh, interested. But um, And I forgot to tell you the week before I wasn't going to be here, but with David Morris being here, I figured we couldn't go far wrong because he is such a good teacher. Um, Colossians, as you know, is a book that deals with a heresy that has sprung up in the church. This odd mix of legalism and Gnosticism, this idea that Jesus is just one of many intermediaries between God and man and actually one of the lower ones because God sent out from himself beings that spanned the gap. Kind of our idea of holiness, God was holy or unable to communicate with sinful man. So he sent all these intermediaries, Christ is just the last one, and therefore of no particular importance, and this horrible heresy apparently was beginning to take root in Colossians. And so um, Paul introduces himself and makes sure they understand that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ. He has authority to be speaking to this issue even though he hasn't been to the Colossian church as far as we know, or at least he didn't know a lot of people he mentions in the book. Uh, There's a lot of you who've never seen my face, so we assume that he hadn't been there. Um, And then he talks about, we talked about the first week, he praises them for their faith and their love. But their faith and their love come because the gospel brings hope. And the hope is that we will be conformed to the image of Christ. And that hope causes us to have faith and love. Sometimes we turn it around. If I have enough faith and love, maybe I'll have hope <laughs> and the gospel will work out to me. But it starts with the gospel, the good news that we can be free from our sin and we can be like Christ. That brings us the hope of our salvation, which isn't just going to heaven, but being transformed into His image, which then causes us to have faith in Jesus Christ and faith and love for the saints. And then last week was this uh, magnificent prayer that Paul prays. If you ever have questions as to how to pray for another believer, read through Colossians 1, starting at verse 9. Let's just read that together, and then we're going to move right away into verse 15. It says, And so, this is Colossians 1 9, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding The forgiveness of sins. So you need to pray for a Christian. You don't know how to pray? Pray that they would be filled with the knowledge of His will, that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that they would bear fruit in every good work, and that they would be strengthened according to the power of His glorious might. That's what we need. That's what we pray for for people. Uh, This morning we're going. And by the way, I'm absolutely shocked that David was able to get through all that in. How, how long were you guys here? <laughs> 11 o'clock or something like that? I don't know. I, I just was amazed that he was able to do that because he uh, usually takes smaller chunks of scripture than that. I think, oh, that's not true. Sometimes he'll take a whole passage in a Sunday morning service. So um, we are going to be looking at verse 15. All, we're going to read down through 23 Um, but we won't get through all of that um, today. We're gonna go through about 15 through 19. Um, What Paul does to combat the heresy is what we should do, and that is not to argue against every particular in the heresy, but rather to focus our attention on Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is supreme. Jesus Christ is um, preeminent over all things, and that's what Paul is going to do, and he's going to spell it out here and then flesh it out in the rest of the book. Some people have said that this is the greatest Christological passage that Paul writes. In other words, if you wanted to know about Jesus Christ and you had to go to Paul's writings, this would be the passage to go to. This spells out who Jesus Christ is. There's two other passages in Paul that I think rival it. One is Philippians 2, the kenosis passage, that he emptied himself and became obedient unto death, even death on a cross. And then there's one in Colosh, or, uh, Ephesians 1, at the end of Ephesians 1, where it goes through in a few verses and spells out who Christ is. I don't want to get into an argument about which is the greatest passage. This is just a good passage. So if you want to read the other passages, it's Philippians 2, verses like 6 through 12, and Colosh, or Ephesians 1, 20 through 23. Um, Let's go ahead and read it. My Bible has a title, The Preeminence of Christ, and I think that's a good title for it uh, because that's what Paul is going to be doing. It says, He is the image (coughs) of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body the church, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, then in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, in which I, Paul, became a minister. Um, This passage is going to spell out for us how Christ is uh, related or relates or his position in, in relation to three things. In other words, uh, the three things would be how is God, um, what is his relationship with God, what is his relationship with creation, and what is his relationship with the church, right? Um, what is? how does How does Christ relate to all three of those things? God, creation, and the church. By the way, if you know how you are related to God and to this world and to the church, that's the important things to know. This is important that we understand this. Uh, So let's start with his relationship with God. What does it say? He is what? The image of the invisible God. So that's the first point. He is the image of the invisible God. Our God is invisible. He is spirit. He cannot be seen. He's the image of the invisible God. There's one other statement that also relates him to God, and that's at the end of, the, uh, in verse 19, it says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So that would be the second one. He's the image of the invisible God. Um, All the fullness of God dwells in him. So that is, and my pens are dying here. I hate that. (laughs) Um, So. Let's start with the image of the invisible God. He is the image of the invisible God. What does that mean? What does the idea of image portray? Yeah, like looking at yourself in a mirror. It's a, uh, the actual word is that it's a, a, a likeness and a true image is a perfect likeness. They would have used that for what would have been stamped on a coin, okay? Um, But when you look in a mirror, you are seeing a likeness of yourself. So this idea of the image of God, this has the idea of, oops, that pen's even worse. Okay. Well, we just have to go with it here. Image has the idea of likeness. What else? Uh, Yeah, reflection would be very similar to the idea of that likeness. It's the image that we see when we would look in a mirror. Okay, Um, I'm going to change that word just slightly. Um, He is the manifestation of God or he makes God manifest. He manifests God to us. And then there's one other word, one and that is that he represents. And that, uh, there it is. He represents God to us. That's the idea of image. Um, And those are all from the understanding, the way that word could be used, okay? So when we see or when we look at Jesus Christ, we are getting an image or a likeness or a reflection of God. Jesus Christ makes God manifest to us. What, what does that word mean, Manifest. Yeah. Okay. I'm just worried about the word manifest, just that one little word. See, I used to drive truck for, during the summer, I actually did that, went over, and we always had to have a manifest, right? Well, man would be hand, but when I think of the manifest, it makes it perfectly clear what's on that truck. So I drive in and I say, I have 624 boxes of this type of fruit. They're going to count that fruit, and if it isn't 624 boxes, somebody's in trouble. That, because the manifest has to say exactly what it is, right? And I think the idea of manifestation also, that idea of man is to touch or to handle, and so we see it there as well. Yeah. And the representation, that would take us to the idea of, say, an ambassador who represents his country for him. So all of that comes out in that idea of the image of God. Fortunately for us, the Bible actually talks a lot about Christ being the image of God. So I want to look at a few passages. Go back to John chapter 1. We're going to run through a couple of these. We're just going to read them because they're pretty self-explanatory. In John chapter 1, verse 14... It says, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only God from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then, if you jump to verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known or he has made him manifest, is how it used to be in the old King James, I believe. Um, He was made manifest through Jesus Christ. Um, Go over to John 14, 9. We're not going to read the whole section, but you remember this. Um, Philip asks Jesus, show us the Father, and it's enough for us. And what does Jesus say? If you have seen me you have seen the Father. I am the perfect representation of God in human flesh. Um, So verse nine, Jesus said, "'Have I been with you so long "'and you still do not know me, Philip? "'Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. "'How can you say, show us the Father? "'Do you not believe that I am in the Father "'and the Father is in me? "'The words that I say to you, "'I do not speak on my own authority, "'but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works. Um, So when Philip is looking at Jesus, he is seeing the Father, but the Father is invisible. He's making the invisible visible. He's making the invisible manifest. Go over to Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Verse 2, actually. Well, we start at the beginning. Um, Verse 1. Hebrews 1.1, long ago at many times and in many ways God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. Um, when did Jesus become the image of the invisible God? It's a difficult question.
1: The image that we can see or the image
0: before? I'm, I'm not just asking the question, Rod. <laughs> Got to commit here.
1: <laughs> well, it kind of depends. So we look back to when he was born or when he grew into it?
0: Okay, so when he was born or when he grew into it? It's a trick question. He's always been the image of the invisible God. Before Abraham was, I am. Yeah, he he has always been the image of the invisible God. Even when he was invisible himself without a physical body, he has always (coughs) been an exact representation and the one who can make God manifest. He was that before, he became that in the flesh, and he is now that in his glorified body. This is a characteristic of Christ. That uh, one of the three uh, persons of the Trinity he perfectly manifests God because he is God by the way there's something interesting if you take and try to make a likeness of something and you move from the greater to the lesser you always lose something in other words if we take a picture of you that's not you right right I mean it, it, it looks like you But something is really missing in a picture. If all I have is a picture of a person, I can get a sense of what they look like. My point is when you go from a greater to a lesser form, something gets lost. The fact that Christ could perfectly manifest God as the image of God means that he is equal with God. Only something that would be on the same level. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? if we just had a painting of somebody, you can capture that scene, but the painting is not a sufficient medium to be able to do that. But Jesus Christ, it says, is the exact representation of the Father. Um, the point is that Jesus is God. And I know you knew that, but that's where Paul starts with these people. Um, two other, A couple other verses, go to Second Corinthians chapter 3, and then we're going to it's all part of the same passage. We're going to go over into chapter 4 as well. 2 Corinthians three eighteen, And this is what we talked about two weeks ago, that this is our hope that we become conformed to the image of Christ, and Christ is the image of God. We are designed to be made like Christ, and we become the image of our Savior, says in verse 18, and we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the other. That's the hope of the gospel that we become conformed to Christ's image. If you go over to chapter four, verse four, it says in their case, talking about unbelievers, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves but Jesus Christ with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's in Jesus Christ that we have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. So there's an application here. (laughs) the focus of our life should be on Jesus Christ because it's in Jesus Christ as we focus on him that we are conformed to his image and therefore fulfill what we have been created for which is to bring glory to God which is what Jesus did. Uh, There is no greater focus of attention than Jesus Christ. That's where we put our focus. That's That's who we study and that's who we look at and that's who we want to be like. So any comments on image of the invisible God. He modeled
1: that on the Father. Yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah. And and he turned his attention to God, which we do also, but we we study Jesus Christ and we worship him because he's the one who made it manifest. Second part of this says all the fullness of God dwells in him. Uh, this one's kind of interesting to me. This word fullness in the Greek, and again, I don't know Greek, so everything I get from here is something that I got from somebody else. But the Greek for this, let me <laughs> see if I can find it, is, uh um, oh, I don't know if I, yeah, I did write it down somewhere. I just have to look for it. Too many papers here. Uh, it's uh, fullness is "pla." Um, no, I can't read that. R-A-M-A. That's the word for fullness in the Greek. That's what Paul uses right here. And that was exactly what the Gnostics used when they talked about God. God was the fullness. Okay? Um, so their idea of deity was fullness. And Paul says that Jesus is the palerma, the fullness of God. So he's the fullness of the fullness, (laughs) okay? If you're trying to talk to a people about their mistake, Jesus has now been elevated to deity simply by the way that they're thinking, that he is the fullness of God and that the fullness of God dwells in him. Uh, The New Testament has a lot to say about the fullness of God as well. And let's just look at a couple of verses um, because we're going to run out of time. Go to Colossians 2, same book that we're in, verse 9. It says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Jesus is the fullness of God, and Jesus is the one who fills us is the idea. Uh, Jesus is the fullness of God. Every thing that God is is found in Jesus Christ, and he is the fullness of God. If you go to back to John 1.16, which is another great uh, passage on Jesus Christ, of course, John 1. John 1.16 says, Um, And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Um, What we experience of the fullness of God through Jesus Christ is his grace and his truth and his mercy and his love and his forgiveness. And we know those things fully because Jesus fully represents God to us. So... The, the intent of this, of course, is that Jesus is God, perfectly God, not somehow substandard to God, not somehow less than God. He is God. Oh. Okay. Any comments before we move on? Because I want to get to his relationship to creation here, but but was that
1: <laughs> is complete? Yeah.
0: God, it's, yeah, we are complete in him and God is completely made manifest in him. Okay. Yeah. Um, it would be, yeah, all of, I was trying to find, I knew you were over there, but also you just disappeared. Um, yes, he has the attributes of God. We know that when he became a man, he set aside uh, some of the attributes of God, um, but again, we're talking about Christ as he um, appears to us. He could not be a man and and have, uh, say, the, 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 and, and be <clears throat> omniscient. As a man, he's limited to, uh, not, not omniscient, omni- uh, omnipresent because he's limited in space. So there was a, an emptying that took place, and that's what Paul talks about in Philippians. But he is still the fullness of God, the... the the essential nature and character of God is present in Him. Yeah, I was going to go to that verse, so let's let's do that um, in Ephesians. Oh, I wasn't in Ephesians one three; I was Ephesians 1.23. But maybe you—I know you've been studying Ephesians a lot. I think it's verse
1: 23.
0: Yeah, I was looking for the actual same word fullness. If you go down to verse 23, actually back up just a little bit to 22, and he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all and there is that principle that because Christ is the fullness of God Christ fills us and then we experience the fullness of God in our own lives as well okay um Let's move on because I would. We've got 10 minutes and I might go a minute or two over, but um, I, I want to finish up with creation. And then next week, we're going to talk about his relation to the church, which is his relationship to us. Um, and sadly, something happens here that we have to talk about, which has caused people to miss the impact of this because we read the passage wrong. And that is that it says that Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation. That's the first thing it says. He is the firstborn of all creation. Anybody here the firstborn? Hey, Matt, Brenda. What does it mean, Brenda, to be the firstborn? What does it mean compared to you and your sister? You're older, right? And not only older, the very first one uh, that came um, from Dick and Irene, right? So you are the firstborn. We are always going to put firstborn in our mind as uh, having a time component, right? Because to be firstborn means to actually have a starting point and we're always going to take and, and put it in terms of a particular uh, spot in the created order. That's what happens. Um, So when Paul says that he's the firstborn of all creation, if that's the way we're thinking, we're gonna have Jesus being a created being. We are gonna have what the Jehovah's Witnesses do, they say, well, God created Jesus, firstborn, and then Jesus creates everything else, okay? And it's sad that that happens um, because I actually think Paul is choosing his word carefully here The word firstborn does not necessarily mean the first one born. It actually does not reveal as, deal as much with time as importance. Um, There is another word, and again, I, I don't know Greek, but this in everything that I've read, there is a word for first created the first thing created, the first thing that comes off the assembly line, the first thing that was ever created. And it is, I can give it to you if you want it. It's P-R-O, proto, which is our word for first, and then the word created. Um, And I'm thinking I spelled this wrong, but if I did, it doesn't make any difference. So um, protoktesis, but this one is proto, there's that first again, proto, all right Paul could have said first created instead he said first born the idea of the firstborn was that which is of the most important it deals with the importance of the person not his place in the family so I want to show you a couple of verses if you go back to Exodus chapter 4 Exodus chapter 4. By the way, the way the Jehovah's Witness Bible will read this is they'll say, and he created, because it tells us next that he's the creator, he created all, and then they put in parentheses, other things. So he was created, then they create, he created everything else, but that's not the intent here, and that's not what Paul is going to say, actually. But if you go back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 22, Uh, Moses is talking to, God is talking to Moses saying what he's supposed to say to Pharaoh and then he says, then you shall say to Pharaoh, thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, I will kill your firstborn son. Um, How is Israel a firstborn son? Was he the firstborn? No. Uh, Esau was firstborn. Is he the first nation ever? First nation born? No. Uh, The point is that he is the firstborn son because it's out of Israel that the Messiah comes. He is the preeminent, the most important nation. This is the nation that God is going to take and bring salvation to the world through. Therefore, Israel is the firstborn. He is preeminent. Okay, go over to, and I know that's out of, uh, 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 not out of Greek, but it's the same idea and it's throughout, uh, throughout scripture. Go to Psalm 89. Um, Psalm 89 is um, a song that speaks of God's um, faithfulness And in verse 20, he talks about one of the ways he's been faithful, and that is to David. He says in verse 20, I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil. Um, I have anointed him. And then it continues to talk about David. Now watch in verse 28. We're still talking about David. Uh, Actually, verse 27. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Okay, was David the firstborn? He was the youngest of eight. He was the eighthborn. Was he the first king ever? And in fact, here you see it because what does he say? I'm going to make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. What makes him the firstborn is not that he was born first, but that God has elevated him to being the most important king ever. Why? Why is David the most important king to ever live? because that's the line that Christ comes through. Saul was not the firstborn king of Israel, but Saul was the first king. David is the firstborn, because David is the preeminent one. He's the one through whom salvation comes. Um, go back to Colossians chapter one, and there's some other passages, um, but I, I, I think you have the idea. It's just important to know it, because it's a passage that if we read it wrong, we miss we sabotage the entire rest of the passage. Colossians 1.18. And he is the head of the church, the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. And then watch what comes next. That in everything he might be preeminent. Uh, he is the firstborn of the dead. Um, you can actually argue that one of two ways. That he is actually truly the first one who ever died and stayed uh, and rose from the dead and stayed alive. Um, my mind goes a little different. Were there other people raised from the dead before before Jesus? A lot of people, right? All the way back to Elijah raising people and Elisha. Now, they died again, but the reason Jesus is the firstborn of the dead is because he's the most important person to raise from the dead because your resurrection, your Salvation is based in that. We will all be raised from the dead, right? Unless the Lord comes and we go to meet him in the air. But every person will, will be raised from the dead at some point, other than those who are here when he returns. And our resurrection depends on his resurrection. Okay? Now, we're not going to get quite as far as I had thought, but I do want to look at the rest of what it says. And if you had trouble believing that he's the firstborn of creation, just look at the rest of what it says about Jesus Christ and his relationship to creation. It says, um, by him all things were created. And I'm going to do it this way. All things were created by him. Who's the creator? Who's the creator? God, the Father, right? In the beginning, God created. Let me ask you again, who's the creator? Jesus Christ, right? All things were created by him. Secondly, what does it say? All things were created by him, or for by him, all things were created. Now, Paul is going to make sure that the Gnostics don't twist this because he starts listing all the things that are created by him. Um, all things were created, things in heaven, oh, Ah, that's important, things in heaven, we'll get to that in a second, but things in heaven, what else, Um, things on earth, visible, invisible, which would include the physical and the spiritual realms, although there's things that are invisible that are physical, but that's not important, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. So thrones, dominion, rulers, and authorities. See, the Gnostics may have believed that Jesus created that because that was the low stuff. But they're gonna have real trouble believing that everything in heaven was created by Jesus Christ. That everything invisible was created by Jesus Christ other than God the Father who's uncreated as Christ is. And then this over here, these thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, those are all of the things that these people would have put above Jesus Christ. Remember, there's God up here, there's all of these emanations, they're actually called aeons, A-E-O-N-S, All these emanations from him all the way down to Christ. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. Christ created all of that. All of those mythical beings that you created, if they actually exist, who created them? Christ. Which means that he is over them. And he is superior to them. And he is preeminent over them. All right? So all things are created by him. What's the next um, preposition here? All things are created through him Now I'm not sure if I know the distinction between by and through. It seems like those are pretty similar words to me. I've heard it one of them that uh, one of them is that's the actual physical act of creation and this is sort of the creative part of it of actually planning and whatnot. So it's through him, it's by him. What's the next one? Oh, this is an important one, isn't it? Everything on earth is created to do what? Give glory to God. What were you created for? To give glory to God. But you were created for Jesus Christ. Uh, Only through a proper relationship with Jesus Christ can we give glory to God but you were created for him. God doesn't share his glory with another. There, there's the, God doesn't say, I'm gonna create you and then you create everything and everything else is for you. Everything else is for God. And Jesus is here being, is being stated as clearly as it can, that he is the creator and everything was created for his glory, Rod. Well, yes.
1: I mean, that's that's our belief that God created us so that we would know His glory. Yeah. 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 Our. Then then we reflect the glory of God
0: in our lives. Yeah. Yes, I, I would agree. Yeah. We're created for God's glory and we're created to be a reflection of His glory. That's how we're created to be like like Jesus Christ and when we are, that's when we ultimately give God glory. Glory comes through our obedience to Him. Um, Everything in the universe obeys exactly what God wants it to do except for people and maybe some demons, some angels. Uh, We're only obedient because Christ was obedient, yeah. But th- this to me is really powerful. Um, if you were to go back and say, well, I misunderstand that Christ was created first and all other things were created you know, through him. No, they were created by him, through him, and for him. And again, so were you. If you want another application out of this passage, th- this is the focus of our life, is to live for Jesus Christ. That's what you were created for. Anything that we're doing that isn't being done for Him, in a sense, is a waste of time. That's what you were created for. You were created for Him. Yes? When
1: we were told
0: kind of tough to do huh Rod yeah (laughs) but that's why we're being that's why we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another this is why it takes a lifetime why we have those used to have those little pins be patient with me God is not through with me yet yeah Um, and and we should see that but it comes by putting our attention on him and not on ourselves as soon as everything's about us we're living for the wrong person. Two other things and then we're gonna be done here. Um, It says he is before all things. Um, So he's before the creation and all things hold together through him. He holds all things together. Um, I'm I'm gonna stop because we're out of time, but it was funny, I was talking with Wesley last night. Wesley is, um, if you don't know Wesley, he reads constantly and he's fascinated by interesting ideas. And so last night he was telling me, he said, Dad, I read this great article. And there's this particle called the Higgs boson particle, and it is the top particle. And they figured out that it, it, and I don't know, he didn't know what the numbers were, but that um, if, if it's 20, uh, that, that number for that particle, if it's between 20 plus or minus five, the universe is stable. And they've calculated that it's like 24.7. And he said, so there's this theory that, that all of a sudden that it could switch just a little bit and the whole universe could disappear. And I said, yeah, there's just one problem with that. It's not the Higgs boson particle that's holding the universe together. Right? Who's holding the universe together? It's Jesus Christ. We can talk physics here. Um, the, 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 The nucleus of the atom is held together by incredibly strong forces that we don't understand. You're held to the earth by a force called gravity that nobody understands. We have theories about it, but we don't know why gravity does what it does. It just does it, okay? I don't need to say that Jesus is holding to me the earth, I can say it's gravity, but gravity ultimately comes because of his creative work. We hold together because of of him, and he holds all things together, physical. Uh, all created beings. By the way, Wesley was very receptive to that. He actually laughed when I said it. It's kind of like, oh good, the universe won't cease to exist tomorrow. No, it won't because Christ holds it together and that's actually a promise to us that that's what's happening. So, um, but the the point here, all of this kind of comes back. um, Our focus is on Jesus Christ because he's the image of the invisible God. And our focus is on Jesus Christ because all things are created For Him, and you're created for him. Um, When our focus of attention is on ourselves, we will not be living the life that God wants us to live. As we move our attention to Jesus Christ and focus our attention on him because he is worthy to be praised and to be worshipped, that's when the transformation takes place. And like Rod said, it's not an easy process, something we work on our entire lives. And we see it in Older folks who have followed the Lord for a long time, we see them become more like Jesus Christ. I was thinking of that with Helen this week, that um, I uh, Helen was not a perfect person, but it was fascinating to see the fruit of the Spirit in her life at the end of a life where she has uh, put her focus of attention on Jesus Christ. And it was, it was a wonderful thing to behold. Um, when we get to heaven, now she's perfectly, well, I have to be careful. I don't know if perfectly she's conformed to the image of Christ. I don't know if she's the exact, um, exactly like Christ, but she's as much like Christ as she can possibly be at this point because she's seen him. So let's go ahead and close in prayer.